How important is loyalty to you? It seems the word comes up often in mixed martial arts, usually when talking about training camps or fighter-coach relationships, but brand loyalty is also unquestionably a part of the sport. Still, even though some fighters have created a name for themselves in one promotion, that doesn't mean they're going to stick around forever. This is prize fighting, and it's logical for fighters to go to the place that has the biggest one. That being said, sometimes the switch to another organization certainly came as a surprise, and often not without some controversy. I'm Balian from MMA On Point, and these are 10 shocking MMA defections. Number 10, Gegard Mousasi. The Dreamcatcher was one of the Strikeforce alumni that found themselves with a UFC contract thrust into their hands after Zufa bought out the promotion in 2013. And although his debut wasn't the most hyped out of all the incoming fighters, he certainly had the trophy cabinet to back things up. A former Cage Warriors champion, winner of the Dream 2008 Middleweight Grand Prix where he beat Melvin Manhuth and Jacare Souza on the same night, as well as later winning the Dream Light Heavyweight Championship and going on to capture Strikeforce Light Heavyweight Gold. The only thing he didn't have was a UFC title, and after going 4-3 in his first few UFC contests, laced up his boots and started a five-fight win including four finishes and a win over a former champion. An incredible 42-6 in his career, surely he had earned his shot at a UFC title, but suddenly the ghost of GSP emerged from the shadows and, well, stole all of his thunder. Not impressed by your performance. The title had already been wrapped up in Bisping's hands after an injury, Dan Henderson getting his final shot, and now George St. Pierre, a retired welterweight, jumped the queue ahead of Musasi, and yeah, he got pretty vocal about the issues he had with the promotion, calling the Reebok kit ugly and unappealing, as well as taking money away from the fighters and declaring that the UFC always puts itself first. Well, what do you know? His old pal and former president of Strikeforce, Scott Coker, reached out and he signed a deal with Bellator, a place where he said he felt free and part of a growing family and team, one that puts fighters ahead of the promotion. Since then, he's won, lost, and recaptured the middleweight title, and although we all knew he was pretty pissed off in the UFC towards the end, being on a five-fight win streak and then just up and disappearing was certainly somewhat shocking. Number 9. Murillo Bustamante Trained by the legendary Carlos Gracie, Murillo Bustamante was certainly one of the best middleweights of his era, and he proved that when he won the middleweight championship, beating Dave Bonet at UFC 35. And in an era where contract disputes were frequent, his first title defense would be the last fight on his contract. Yeah, not a mistake the UFC would make today. See Francis Ngannou. Apparently, they tried to work out a deal but were unable to, so four months later, while still injured, Bustamante took on Matt Linden, a fight that would become famous for its controversial double tap. John McCarthy stopped the fight after an armbar, but Matt said he didn't tap, so the fight was restarted. Started. Luckily, Murillo eventually got another submission, but also had time to complain to Dana during the rounds, who told him there was nothing he could do. After the fight, the UFC made an offer that Bustamante called not bad, so he shopped around in Japan, discovering that MMA was a lot more popular and paid a lot more money. He went back to the UFC, who offered him less than before, and believing they had placed all their bets on Matt Linland and it had backfired, he had no choice but to go elsewhere. He ultimately explained, They still don't forgive themselves. Don't forgive me and learn with this lesson. A champion will never enter the ring without a contract anymore. Bustamante was just getting started in the UFC, but six months after he won the title, he was already gone. Number 8. Ken Shamrock the night that Cesar Ortiz beat Lions Den team member Guy Mezga at UFC 19 and proceeded to wear that t-shirt around the ring in celebration, Joe Silver described the events that followed as being burned into his memory. SEG were concerned about Shamrock's anger as he flipped tables backstage. They separated the Lions Den from Team Hammerhouse, who were in the locker room with Tito, as police and security were called to monitor the situation. It felt like something different, a level of intensity in a rivalry the sport had never seen. The only thing is the two of them wouldn't fight for another three years. Ken was still wrestling in the WWE 
WWF at the time. He joined after John McCain started pulling the UFC from TV and had no other choice, really. But now that his contract was over, everyone expected him to return to the UFC once more and to take on Tito. Ken was still believed to be in his prime at this point, and many people thought he would be too much for Tito to handle, but he didn't come home. He went, like many, where the money was good over to Pride, where he went two and two going through some absolute wars in the process. Then finally, four years after the night of UFC 19, he fought Tito in a grudge match at UFC 40 that literally saved the promotion, brought them mainstream attention, and jettisoned them out of the underground and towards mainstream culture. I mean, I guess everything worked out okay, but it certainly was a surprise when Ken returned to Pride and not the UFC, but I guess money talks. Number 7. Mirko Krokop UFC fans had to wait 10 years to see the Croatian kickboxing sensation make his debut, and by the time he did, they were foaming at the mouth for some head kick action. Supercop had been destroying the best in the world over in Pride, where he'd already beaten some of the combat sports legends, winning the 2006 Openweight Grand Prix, beating Vandalay Silva and Josh Barnett on the same evening. So the UFC buys Pride, and yes, finally, Krokop in the UFC, and his debut went as it was supposed to as he murked poor Eddie Sanchez in the first round. But then the world turned upside down as he was the one who got head kick KO'd by Gabriel Gonzalez at UFC 70, then lost a decision to Chet Congo. Still, he could bounce back. It was early days. He'd had three fights in one year, and fans were sure there were plenty more to go. He was finally now in the US promotion. Only that didn't happen. Expecting him to return in 2008, he instead announced he would compete in the first event for the new Japanese promotion Dream. He knew people would think he was running away from the UFC competition, but stated, I was thinking a lot about how to continue with my career, and I think in this moment, I think Dream is the right place for me. He also told media he preferred the ring to the cage and felt more at home fighting in Japan than fighting in the US. Sorry, American fans. But yeah, imagine all that, all the hype for Krokop to come to the UFC, and in one year, he's already moved on. Yes, he did make a return and has competed across the globe in various promotions since. It was still a shocking departure, though. Number 6. Fedor Emelianenko at one point, Dana White called signing Fedor Emelianenko his obsession. And yeah, while I think that's still true, after going through the negotiation process several times over, he's adamant these days that he offered him the best deal of his life and he didn't take it, so no skin off Dana's back there. Still, after Pride folded and all these new superstars were coming into the UFC and being the petulant fans we are, we expected to see Fedor join them. I mean, he was the reigning Pride heavyweight champion. Don't forget, though, that the acquisition of Pride didn't come with any fighter contracts, but this didn't stop Dana from promising he would sign the Russian. There were negotiations on an island, but ultimately he wasn't able to get them to sign a contract. Fedor joined new promotion Affliction, and understandably, there was some backlash. With heavyweights like Cain Velasquez, Shane Carwin, Brock Lesnar, and Frank Mir in the UFC division, some accused Fedor of wanting to protect his legacy and take on lesser competition. This wouldn't be the case shortly after he would face Fabricio Verdum in Strikeforce once again, not joining the UFC roster, and his 26-fight winning streak would be broken. Why, Fedor? Why? Were we, the UFC fans, not worthy of your talents? Still, for a moment there, the fanbase thought the last Emperor was about to enact some UFC dominance, and although he remains in the GOAT discussion, I mean, his lack of UFC resume really hurts his argument. Number 5. Dan Henderson if you weren't a fan of Dan Henderson during his Pride days where he became the first MMA athlete to hold two belts simultaneously, then certainly after he dropped another bomb on a barely conscious Michael Bisping, most fans, I mean at least the US ones, knew who the All-American was. Dangerous Dan Hollywood Hendo Henderson had spent an entire 12 weeks with the Count on The Ultimate Fighter, politely grinning in response to several of his laddish escapades and biding his time until the night of UFC 100 where the two coaches met to settle the score, but also more importantly, to secure their places as the number one contender, which this fight undoubtedly was. The winner expected to go on and face the champion Addison Silva. 
So when Hendo completed both assigned tasks that evening, number one, get revenge, number two, secure shot at the only title not left in the trophy cabinet, it was with extreme surprise that he didn't re-sign with the UFC and he up and left the promotion. Henderson stated he was looking for a pay rise, but Dana told the media he was apparently looking to become the highest paid fighter on the roster. They also banned his main sponsor, Clinch Gear, from the promotion and it was reported instead of offering the title shot, offered him Nate Marquardt at UFC 109. Suffice to say, it was enough for Dan to walk away to strike force. He had four fights, became the light heavyweight champion, then KO'd Fedor, then he rolled back into the UFC two years later on I Expect More Money Than When He Left. That's a smart man right there. Number four, Rampage Jackson. So remember when I said that after Pride was bought by Zufra and what looked like an all-you-can-eat platter of MMA talent was left for the UFC and us, the fans, to gobble up? Well, another big name that fans were dying to see step inside the octagon was Quentin Rampage Jackson, the larger-than-life character that had several show-stopping performances in Pride and, as an American himself, would fit nicely on the roster. However, his departure from Pride actually came before the UFC bought the company and it would be his relationship with the team that caused him to leave. He told MMA Weekly that some of the employees had treated him like dirt and although they had the best fighters, they didn't exactly promote him as much as he felt they could have. But Rampage had been a star in the promotion and definitely a face of pride. His decision to leave certainly shocked a lot of fans. It was the World Fighting Alliance that reached out to Rampage, offering him a signing bonus, a cut of pay-per-view, and no more yellow cards in matches where he reportedly had lost over $100,000 due to the fines that came with them. Apparently, the UFC didn't even reach out, but Rampage expected that was due to the fact he KO'd Chuck and ended his chances at the Pride 2003 tournament. Apparently, it all came down to some t-shirts. Rampage had sold over $3,000 worth and Pride refused to give him a dime. He told them, you know what? Keep that three grand. I'm not signing with you. WFA was bought by the UFC along with Quinton's contract and Rampage finally made his way to the octagon. Number three, Kyoji Horiguchi. When Demetrius Johnson was at the height of his title reign, he was knocking off UFC contenders left, right, and center. So often that any new member of the roster barely had a chance to develop their skills or even get a few fights before they were thrown into the dominant champion. Kyoji Horiguchi was no different. He'd been on the roster for just a year and a half before he faced Mighty Mouse and was submitted with just one second left in the final round. He had a handful more fights before heading to Japan to compete in the relatively new Ryzen promotion. Since then, he's become one of the faces of the organization, if not the face, as he's been doing nothing but dominating, winning three fights in three days to be crowned the victor of the 2017 Bantamweight Grand Prix, eventually winning the title, starching contenders with first-round knockouts, and even heading to Bellator amidst his title reign to beat their champion Darian Caldwell. He returned a hero to the promotion and had an epic two-fight series with Kai Asakura where they both finished each other in the first round respectively, Horiguchi holding the belt by the end of it. Ryzen doesn't always have the best fights, but he's genuinely someone that a lot of fans will tune into to watch specifically, so it was a shock to the system when news broke he would be departing the promotion to head to none other than Bellator. And yeah, the two organizations had cross-promoted in the past, which makes his defection even more strange. Apparently, once COVID travel restrictions have been eased, he would occasionally return to Japan to defend his Ryzen title, but as of now, he's a Bellator fighter, and he just faced Sergio Pettis for the bantamweight belt in a fight he was dominating, but a patient Pettis found a spinning back fist in round four and kept his title. Number two, Randy Couture. As Wild West as the earlier UFC days were, having some composure, an actual game plan, and a skill set that let you choose when to grapple and when to strike could take you pretty far. It wasn't a lot, but fans recognized this when they saw it, and by UFC 13 and the arrival of Randy Couture, he knew this as well, as he smashed through the existing roster and found himself six months into his career in a title fight in Japan against champion Maurice Smith, which he subsequently won, and it turns out he liked Japan so much he decided he would stay there. It was pretty impressive already that an inexperienced and, let's face it, aging competitor 
competitor had been able to find success in the UFC, and the fans certainly respected that, and given that his game, at least at the time, was advanced for its era, seeing if he could solve the puzzles different opponents posed was an exciting concept. But yeah, again, this was the dark ages of MMA. I mean, it was barely surviving in America. John McCain was on a slanderous campaign to get the sport out of the US. It was banned in multiple states, had many regulatory bodies that just didn't want anything to do with it. So while he was still the UFC heavyweight champion, Randy signed to fight in Valet Tudo, Japan, where he was paid a lot of money to unfortunately lose to Ensign Inoue and then again in rings. Still, he did eventually return to the UFC where he won the title three more times and remained for the rest of his career. Not a great look for the promotion when your heavyweight champ up and leaves, though. Number 1. BJ Penn if you weren't around to see the career of BJ Penn, it's understandably hard looking at how it ended to see why many people still call him the greatest of all time. But it was lightning in a bottle. He made his UFC debut 0-0 in his career, and across the next three years, we saw him smash through the majority of the lightweights on the planet. Granted, he was beaten by the more experienced Pulver and Drew with Carl Uno, which basically led to the end of the lightweight division for a period of time in the UFC. But when he jumped up to welterweight and put a beating on one of the best pound-for-pound -pound fighters on the planet in the champion Matt Hughes at UFC 46, which, by the way, he was no way expected to win, his destiny as the prodigy in the sport was pretty much confirmed. And boy, were we excited. I mean, aside from being the first American in history to win a gold medal at the World Jiu-Jitsu Championships, he had incredible boxing, just unstoppable pressure, and you could not take this man down to literally save your life. I mean, obviously, if you did, you were probably going to get tapped anyway. So the prodigy was here, and his legacy was ready to begin as the new welterweight champion. And I don't even need to add the but right here because, yeah, you already know it's coming. Against the advice of Dana White and because he felt there weren't any relevant challenges for him in the UFC, he signed to fight Dwayne Ludwig in K1. This was a breach of his UFC contract and so he was stripped of the title. But BJ filed a lawsuit against UFC to prevent Hughes and GSP fighting for what he called his belt. It was denied. He spent two years outside of the UFC competing in K1 before having a meeting that he said started at 10 a.m. and finished at 3 in the morning where terms were renegotiated for a new UFC contract. Two years of prime BJ Penn with the welterweight title. Man, that would have been something to see. And a big shout out to Lotten, the casual Veerkant, for editing today's video. And you really should follow him at Lotten underscore Veerkant on Twitter. Shout out to Ben Rosette and the excellent music he provided during the intro video. His music can be found on streaming platforms everywhere. There is a link in the description and follow him at Ben Rosette on Instagram and on Twitter. Thanks so much for watching today, guys. Remember to like and subscribe. I'll see you in the next one.